We hope this explanation of God's Word enriches your life. To help you understand the audience for this talk, we suggest you read the context material on the About Us page. Please read also our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material from philipjensen.com. The following sermon was given at St. Matthias Family Church, where Philip Jensen was senior minister. Now, if we turn our outlines and our Bibles, Colossians 3.18 to 4.6, and we'll be starting off as we were two weeks ago, looking at ethics uh, and comparing Christian and pagan views of ethics effectively. That is, two weeks ago we looked at the first half of chapter 3, which was about the transformed lifestyle, mainly about the transformation I go through in being a Christian, in having died with Christ, having risen with Christ, I now live the new risen life, no longer living the old dead life. And so most of the changes, there are changes about myself, about what I should seek, how I should, how I should live, the things I should value. But they, of course, have implications for my relationships. So, for example, in verse 12 of chapter 3, I clothe myself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. It's what I am to be like as a Christian person, but, of course, if I am like that as a Christian person, that will affect the way in which I relate to others. In the second half of chapter 3, as I'd call it second half, the last section of chapter 3, verse 18, following uh, through to the ninth section, it's more on the subject of relationships. It's how husbands, wives, parents, children, masters, slaves relate to each other and how those who relate outside in chapter 4, verses 2 to 6, in our relationship with God and our relationship with those outside the faith. Transformed is how I'm talking about it because we expect it to be completely different. Now that we've died, now that we've risen, we do not expect to live the same way as we lived when we were dead. We expect to be different, therefore, to the pagan world around about us. And we expect to be misunderstood by them and we expect to be unpopular amongst them for we will live a lifestyle that is different to them and we will relate to each other and to them in a way that they won't like relationships necessarily. Now when society is largely Christianized, well then the differences are small and the similarities are great. As society moves away from its Christianity and Christian roots into a more pagan mode, rejecting God and his ways, then the differences become great and the similarity is small. That gives confusion for people. For many people in certain societies at certain times perceive themselves to be Christian because their lifestyle and their relationships are conducted on the same pattern that Christians conduct our lifestyle and our relationships. But then in another day, in another age, in another society, in another culture, the way we conduct ourselves can be diametrically opposed to the way in which our neighbours conduct themselves, the lifestyle they have and the values they have. For example, here is a continuum of moral issues on the subject of sexuality. That is, you move from love and faithfulness, chastity, monogamy, celibacy, through to divorce, fornication, pornography, same-sex uh, homosexuality, adultery, rape, pedophilia, hate, fickleness. So you move from one kind of end of the way in which we can be treating each other through to the other end of the ways in which people can be treating each other. And Christians will focus in on certain aspects as being consistent with our relationship with God, with our transformed relationship. And so it's that kind of area that Christians would say, yes, that's the way to behave, that is the way that's appropriate. You'll see that the D of divorce gets in because we recognise in the Bible that sometimes it is right to divorce. <laughs> and yet we also know in Malachi chapter 2 that God says, I hate divorce. So divorce is not really something you'd want to put in the Christian box, 
Yet it's not something that you would exclude always from the Christian box because sometimes it is the right thing under the right circumstance at the right time. Whereas fornication, that is sex before marriage, is always a wrong thing as would be pornography and adultery and pedophilia and so on. And so the Christians would have a sense of the kinds of things that are right and it's within that kind of box leaving many things out of the continuum. Now, those who are not basing it upon Christianity have to make up their mind as to where that box is going to be. They will slide it along in different parts at different times and some would see some of these things are all right but some of them then become impossible. Celibacy and fornication can't both be the kinds of thing and so you tend to move further and further down and as you move further down you, you take on bits and you say, but, but hang on, I, I believe in fornication and adultery but I want love and faithfulness. And the Christian answer is you can't have that. If you believe in faithfulness you can't have adultery. If you believe in love, then it won't be fornication, for if you loved as Christians understand the meaning of the word love, then you wouldn't be using each other, but would be taking responsibility for each other. And so it goes on, as different societies at different times will have picked up different ways of relating. Now, at the period of when a society is highly Christianized, of course the box comes back here both for the Christian and the society as a whole. And so I think you could pick up periods of the 19th century, for example, or even the early 20th century, I think even the 1950s of this century, at which the box for society and the box for Christianity would be pretty much the same. There wouldn't be a huge difference. That is, sex outside of marriage was considered to be wrong. Pornography was considered to be wrong. Homosexuality and rape and pedophilia were unbelievably wrong, unimaginably wrong. But in the last 30 or so years, our society as a whole has shifted in these directions. Mind you, that shift took place amongst individuals much, much earlier than that. Uh, Bertrand Russell or, or, or the, uh, the Bloomsbury set in England, they were way down this end a long time ago. They had moved themselves down as to holding this was the right way and, and indeed the Christian view was a completely different way. And so there's this sliding scale that we have and you want to know how is it that people can make any choices in these areas? Well, part of the problem is, and this is just one of the areas in which my diagram of course is wrong, is that we're really not dealing with a level playing field. The line should actually kind of slope down towards uh, this side because in fact sin and Satan and our own sinful nature has by its very character the desire to keep on sliding the moral square rectangle down in that direction. It is kind of unnatural. You've got to go against the flow of your own natural instinct to head back in that way. But the rationality of moral decisions, well, it rests upon utility and justice. So when we discuss moral questions, people use these two characteristics for the discussion, these two criteria. Is it fair? That's the justice question. Does it work? That's the utility question. And so is this the way that will make for a satisfying, happy society? Is this the way that people will be treated fairly, justly? And on these two pillars, people build their moral rectangle. And so some would say, well, no, it's, it's not fair that people have to be locked up in a monogamous, unhappy relationship. We've got to include divorce, that's just. But once you move the divorce across there, well, you then change the character of how much of fornication you're going to accept. How free is it that people will be able to do these things? And is it fair? Is it just? Will it make any difference? Won't it work better for society if people rather than having their first sexual contact at their honeymoon, if they can go and try out several partners first and, and learn what it means to live with each other, learn what it's like to have partners, learn what it means to be a husband and wife, so that we will accept divorce, but so we just move ourselves down a little bit further. But of course, once you have a society where people can try out different partners and it opens up the whole kind of pornography and adultery and 
so the discussion goes on as our society moves and it's all at the moment the last 30 or 40 years moving one direction there's hardly any backlash back yet but it's moving steadily down that area so that we can certainly have it to there and pedophilia well in 1992 in America the psychiatric uh, the psychiatrist of America decided that pedophilia wasn't something that was a you needed help with it's not a psychiatric disorder anymore it is just a, you need to help pedophilia pedophilics with their kind of particular choices but it's not itself a wrong thing there is possibly a bit of backlash happening at the moment away from pedophilia but it's still in certain people's minds not as wrong as it is in other people's minds so it's not as if society as a whole shifts there are differences with individuals as well as with society and in our society at the moment some backing away from that I'm glad to say but yet a great concern we're kind of sitting like that kind of area at the moment aren't we there as a society as a whole and the arguments are still on these two issues utility and on justice on whether it's fair and whether it works and Christians agree with both those categories of discussion for Christians believe that it is God's world and God's world will work God's way and therefore it's right that we do that and it's God's world and God is just and justice will be there if you like you can move it into philosophical terms this is this is empiricism and that is intuitionism that's the difference what is justice it's the, the sense the intuition that that's fair or that's not fair that's right that's not right and utility well that you've actually weighed it up and seen what the consequences are what the results are and it works for society's good or it works against society's good and so you make rules you make legislation you have educational programs or whatever it may be so as to improve what will happen in society we Christians maintain our choices on those two bases as well we say that only in monogamy and celibacy are love and faithfulness upheld it's only when you come back up this direction of the, the spectrum that you actually can hold together these things and we say that it's only in celibacy and monogamy that people all people are respected the weak members as well as the strong members of society the children who come as a result of marriage and relationship and the grandparents who have got vested interest in the children and who through divorce and the like are often separated away from their own grandchildren and society as a whole is more stable when people stay long term committed to each other and committed to their children and their raising and so on and so today's pagan society we would critique the serialized polygamy of de facto relationships we say leads to greater violence to absentee fathers to single parents to sexual abuse all of which creates huge social problems that is on the basis of utility we say the present system's not working too well the present system is disastrous in terms of justice it's not fair it's not fair on the grandparents it's not fair on the kids it's not fair on the society as a whole so we'd want to argue for our position on those two bases just like the pagan would want to argue on those two bases for a different position just this week uh, I had facts through to me that uh, a, a short account of a report uh, published I understand this week from Dr Lucy Sullivan for the Centre of Independent Studies in which she has shown a strong relationship between teenage mothers, single parenting and the rise of violent crimes in our society here is a utilitarian argument for the kind of Christian value system that expresses itself at that point however the trouble with utilitarianism is that all empiricism is countered by other empiricism and so uh, I also saw in the same facts that came through to me Dr Weatherborn, uh, Weatherburn arguing the exact reverse uh, on similar kinds of arguments as well that is it doesn't work like that and so we have endless discussions as to the nature of the relationship between our family patterns and the consequences on society as to what is good for society or not good for society 
and while we have this sense of justice there's not a real agreement as to what is just what is fair and so our views are always being contested one person's intuition differs from another one study differs in its results from another and therefore the real basis for our views of utility and justice actually lies somewhere else for what makes it utility what makes it just for us the answer is grounded in something more that is for us the utility comes from God who is the creator of the universe and has made it and it works because it works his way because he has made it to work his way and our justice is because he is the just God and the judge of all the earth who sets within our hearts that sense of justice but we know what works and why it works and we know what's just and why it's just because God as king has revealed it in his word that is why we stay where we are because it is based on revelation revelation mediated to us through the utility and the justice of it but revelation it is the non-christian has a different basis to their utility and justice for the non-christian it's the self is king it is what i think or you could put society as king if you're a thoughtless person it's what i want and that's why it keeps moving about over different periods of time in history the non-christian one will keep moving as we fall prey to the pressures of our society and as we read the latest report on the values of same-sex marriage or we read the latest report on the difficulties of same-sex marriage or we read the latest report on the consequences of de facto's or single parents so society's value system moves around but what we disagree about is not utility or justice it's not really which part of this is right or wrong our disagreement is down here that is where the disagreement really lies whether God is king or whether I am king you see I can have I am king and live right up here couldn't I where externally everything looks the same I believe in love and chastity and celibacy faithfulness monogamy and I recognize divorce is an unnecessary evil we've got to have it in this fallen world but it's not a really good thing I've got no value system in relationship different to the Christian value system and I can see the utility of it and argue it as Dr Lucy Sullivan may or may not be a Christian I don't know the first thing about her but she could be not a Christian and argue for what she's argued by looking at statistical information the rise of violent crime looking at the rise of single parenting put a comparison between them see the connection between them see what percentage of people in violent crime come from single families you can do that study without any necessary belief that God is king you could be there believing in what's just what's fair for the child without any reference to God is king there's a, a leading Australian playwright the film director and politician up in the northern beaches of Sydney who uh, he doesn't believe in celibacy and chastity and monogamy in fact he makes himself famous for his adulteries and his fornication but he has recently written very strongly against divorce where children are really made secondary to the whole process and he says that the parents must pay the full price and they must set up home in such a way that the children will he's quite strongly against the free and easy divorce system that we have in Australia now but it's not because he believes in God it's just one area of life where he can see from justice's point of view that it's not just that children should have to pay the price for their parents inability to get on with each other and so out of just sheer justice he wants to argue for a very Christian view on divorce so you could be right up there for completely different reasons but if you are there because self is king well then at another time you can shift from there can't you just as easily you can make your choices to go wherever you want and as a society as a whole can shift so you might like to shift along with society as clearly our society has moved to a position I guess somewhere like that isn't it as a shift today 
that the Christians feel uncomfortable about holding to our views here and being seen to disagree with our society here. But in fact, this is where we disagree. This disagreement up the top, that's just the outworking of the fundamental disagreement. Who's running the show? God or me? And I'm not a conservative. Let us do that which is held in the past. Because in a pagan society, I don't want to do what the rest of society is doing. I don't want to conserve pagan society. I would be a radical. I want to change society so that it would come to be where I am over here. It's got nothing to do with being conservative or traditional. It's got to do with being Christian. And being Christian is to have God as king and therefore to hear what he has to say and see the justice and utility of it worked out in the practice of the relationships. So what we have here in front of us in Colossians 3, which we're now getting to, is that Christ has died and risen, and we have died with Christ and risen with him. And so we now live for Christ as our king. And therefore we will live his way, not our way. That's the big difference, isn't it? That we live Christ's way, not our way. That's the fundamental difference. You see it there in chapter 3, verse 17, where we finished last time, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever, speaking, turning this on, turning it off, walking out, going home, driving home, eating at McDonald's later, whatever you do, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is king of your life if you are in Christ Jesus. Turn with me to the back of our outline here and you'll see at the top of the back of the outline a prayer that we use Sunday by Sunday and going to use again tonight. It's a prayer which thanks God for what he has done in rescuing us because we have all lived with ourselves as king. That's what the first paragraph's about, isn't it? I'm guilty of rebelling against you, ignoring you. I need forgiveness. God has sent his son to die for us that we be forgiven. Rise again to give us new life. But notice the character of the prayer. We ask for forgiveness in the third paragraph, but please change me that I may live with Jesus as my ruler. That's what a Christian is. Someone in the kingdom of Jesus. Someone who has been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's glorious Son. Look back to chapter 1, verse 12, 13, rather, of Colossians. 1, 13. For God, he has rescued us. 1, 13. He has rescued us out of the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. How can you be in the kingdom of the Son? Well, by having him as your king. That's what it means to be in his kingdom. And you can get there because... He has paid the price for us, which is what the redemption, the forgiveness of sins is about. So what we have here tonight is this gospel relationship. How do you live out these relationships in this world? How does having Jesus as king affect the way I treat my wife or my children or my neighbours or my, my, uh, my masters or my slaves or whoever it may be? This basic gospel relationship is worked out over all these other relationships. Now, it may or it may not make much sense for those of you who do not have Jesus as king. You may be someone who can actually understand why it is that you are so different. It may be that you are so close to us that, yes, you'll say, that's indeed what I think is true. It may be that you are so far away from us that what we do seems to you to be bizarre, if not weird. But it comes out of God being king as opposed to self being king. That's where it comes from. And utility and justice only make sense in that context of who is king. Well, now let's turn to verses 18 and 19 with wives and husbands. First, notice the reciprocal nature of the requirements. That is, both parties are responsible. The responsibilities differ, 
but they harmonise. That's what I mean by them being reciprocal. Now, you may think that's obvious enough. Of course, you tell the wives what they're to do, you tell the husbands what they're to do, but it's not obvious, it's a big deal. That is, it's not just the wife who has the responsibility for the joy, for the work of any marriage, it's the wife and the husband who are both responsible. Throughout the New Testament, both husband and wife are called upon to act responsibly. In Mark chapter 10 and Matthew chapters 5 and 19, when Jesus is speaking about marriage and divorce, or 1 Corinthians 7, that long section on singleness and marriage in Paul's writing, or Ephesians chapter 5, where he discusses marriage in a, a fuller form of much the same we have here, or 1 Peter chapter 3 where Peter writes on the subject wives are addressed and husbands are addressed. It's not just the responsibility of the wife, it is the responsibility of both. That is, wives are not chattels. They are not property. They're not to be purchased, dismissed, sold, ignored or brutalised in the Bible. That is never the case. Wives are morally responsible people who are called upon to act responsibly in their relationship and husbands are morally responsible who are called upon to act responsibly in the relationship. Both are to take responsibility for the marriage relationship. Not one, not the other, but both. And the husband cannot ignore the needs and right responsibility of the wife any more than the wife can be treated without any responsibility because she is some kind of less than human being. Still modern people haven't grasped hold of what the Bible has been teaching for several centuries for nearly two millennia on the subject. You still have people who say such self-centred things as what I want out of my marriage or what I want in a partner or what I want you when they come to me to tell my spouse is. It's all about me when the Bible sees it and much more about my responsibility for her or for him as the case may be. Wives, what are their responsibilities? Second thing to notice here is that they are to submit to their husbands. Notice the reason. As is fitting in the Lord. For the Lord Jesus Christ died to purchase his bride to whom his bride, the church, now submits. If you are in the Lord, you are in that church. And the responsibility of that church is to submit to its bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why any bride within that church should be acting as the bride, the church itself, in submission to her husband, to her Lord. Please notice, the word submit does not mean be a doormat. That is not what the word submit means. If you see the word submit and say, oh, therefore I'm supposed to be a doormat, you have a major spiritual problem, a major one. For that is not what the Bible meant never meant it, never came close to meaning it, and you have a perversity of character to think that's what it meant. You've obviously got a deep difficulty, and you need to take it to the Lord in prayer that you've got such a perversity of mind. It does not mean be a doormat. You need to understand the nature of submission more clearly than that. Let me help you with it a little bit. Submission in chapter 2 of Luke's Gospel and verse 51. We won't look it up tonight, but you can check it out later. Submission is what Jesus did to his parents. It is translated in the NIV, obedience, but it is exactly the same Greek word as the word you have here. Jesus submitted to Joseph and Mary. That does not mean Jesus was a doormat. I've never heard anybody think that as a result of that verse that Jesus was somehow a doormat. It's a ridiculous notion to think it was the case. Notice that also means that submission does not mean inequality or lacking in ability. That is, Jesus was every bit equally human with his parents, Joseph and Mary. And he was a person of considerably greater ability than either Joseph or Mary or Joseph and Mary combined. Jesus was God and he submitted to his human parents. It has nothing to do with being less than the person you submit to. That's how pagans think. Pagan idea is you submit to the person more powerful. You submit to the person who's stronger, who's richer, who's smarter, who is oppressive. Not so God. God's son submitted to his human parents who were almost infinitely weaker than he was. 
almost infinitely of less value than he was. And yet he submitted to them. It's got nothing to do with power. It has nothing to do with, with equality or with ability. Submission, further notice, friends, is the Christian responsibility of all Christians. When people speak against submission, they are speaking against basic Christian living. What's the difference between us and the non-Christians? We have God as king. We are the subjects, the submissive people. To be a Christian, you must submit to Jesus as ruler. How can we who believe in submission to a ruler speak against submission as a way of life? We can't. Submission is a good and godly thing. It is acknowledging the rightful authority of the other person. And so the Christian is called upon in the New Testament to submit to government. Indeed, to submit, we're told in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, to all authorities, because all authorities have been instituted by God. And therefore I'm to submit to my I'm to submit to a policeman. I'm to submit to the teacher, I'm to submit to my tutor, I'm to submit to my boss, I'm to submit to the Prime Minister, I'm to submit to the Premier, I'm to submit to any authority that is placed over me by God. Submission is a way of life for Christian people, which is why we are such good citizens, because we are not rebels. Rebels is what we were before we became Christians. Becoming Christian is to give up rebellion, be forgiven for rebellion and become submissive to the God and creator, ruler and judge of the universe and all those people that he has placed in authority over us. That is the way of life and so wives submit to your husbands as in the Lord, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Love again, you see, if you're a pagan at this point, you immediately think, be sexually infatuated with your wife, which is a good and right thing that you should be, but that's not what it's about. If you are to love, you are to love as Christ loved. It's the same word that is used here and used in Ephesians chapter 5. How does Christ love his bride? Well, he lays down his life for her. That's how he loves his bride. He died for her. He sacrificed himself for her. When she was rebellious, when she was sinful, when she was no people, that is when he did it. Before she repented, that is when he did it. So husbands are to lay down their lives for their wives. They are to act at all times, under all circumstances, for her best interest. Whatever it may be, your sacred duty and responsibility is to put her interest in front of your own interest. Everything you do must be done for her and her welfare, whatever it may be and however it may cost you. And you do not do it when she is deserving of it, you do it when she is undeserving of it. And you do not do it when she has said sorry, but you do it before she says sorry because the Lord Jesus Christ laid down his life before we said sorry. Uh, fellas, I don't know when the occasion is that she has ever done anything wrong that needs to say sorry to you, but... Should such an occasion ever arise, let me assure you, don't wait till she says sorry before you do the reconciling act. And the reconciling act is to pay the price for the, for the error. You must pay that she will be able to be forgiven. That is what the Lord Jesus Christ did. That is a massive sacrifice. But every bit of my being must be devoted to making sure of her welfare, whatever it may be. It is the opposite of the way the pagans act, out of harshness, possibly better translated, to, to be bitter against your wife. For it is so easy in the conflict that comes from two sinful people living with each other to arouse within yourself not love, but bitterness and hostility and resentment we must not be like that. We must, men, be loving, sacrificing, giving. This passage then tells us how. How to live as wives and husbands and how to choose our partners. How to live. Live by your side of the relationship. Wives, don't spend your time endlessly worrying about the fact that he's not as loving as he should be. 
You just work at being as submissive as you should. And husbands, don't spend all your time worrying about the fact she's not submitting to you like you think you sh she should. You work at loving her as you should. Everybody wants the partner to do the right thing while they can go on being as sinful as they are. You do your side and leave the partner to do her side. When a husband has to call upon his wife to submit, he is already in deep danger of not loving. Don't worry about her in danger of rebellion. You are in danger of not loving her. It's nearly always got to do with an authoritarian insecurity, which has got very little to do with laying down your life for her welfare. Don't teach her about submission. Allow me to. As the word of God is taught, so the women folk here can hear God's word being said and bear it to mind and pray it through because it is costly. It is difficult. I don't want to do what the policeman tells me to do. I want to do it what I want to do. I, mean, I clearly want to get through there and he's saying it's a detour and I just want to go through there. I've got to submit to what he says. I don't want to do what the government says. But I've got to. They've been appointed. And they're wasting my tax money. That isn't irrelevant. I'm to pay my taxes, so I should do what I'm required to do. Whether they're wasting the money or not wasting the money isn't irrelevant. I've got to pay taxes because I must be submissive to the government. And so I know it's hard, women. I know it's hard to be submitting to a man who you can see is a blundering idiot at this point. <laughs> and I know it's hard, fellows, when she's been harping out of you all day long not to grow in bitterness and enmity and not to want to say oh, you should be submitting rather than telling just do what is loving for her which most likely means doing what she's been telling you to do all day and you haven't been doing your lazy loafer but do what is in her best interest whatever it may be you've got to go on loving when you want to be bitter and you've got to go on submitting when you want to organise it. So it tells you how to live it out. Although how it tells you to live it out is pretty hard, isn't it? Because you're sinful. Because you're rebellious. But it also tells you how to choose. <coughs> you see, on this scenario, the bossy woman and the unloving man are difficult partners to live with, aren't they? I don't know if it's still published anymore, but I used to always think that Andy Cap cartoon strip was written by someone who read the Bible. I'm sure it wasn't, but it was written by somebody because he portrays the worst possible world. Flo, who was constantly trying to tell Andy how to live, and Andy, who was constantly running away from his responsibilities rather than doing anything for Flo. It was the exact mirror image of what is being said here. So it tells you how to choose. How? should you choose? Look for the non-bossy woman? Look for the loving man? No. You have still got a back to front, haven't you? You've got to learn to be a submissive woman. You've got to learn to be a loving man. Don't go looking for the perfect partner as if you get the perfect partner, then you're married, you'll work. That's not on. It's not possible. Helen and I have got the only perfect partners in the room. It's not going to happen for you. You've got to go for something less than perfect. The problem, friend, is you still are thinking wrongly. You think if you get the perfect partner, it will work. If only she would do the right thing. If only he would do the right thing. No, no. Only you will do the right thing. Only I will do the right thing. I must become the loving man. Not when I marry, as if suddenly it's going to snap like that. I walk out at the end of the wedding service and now I'm a totally transformed person. That is not going to happen like that. As you are now, so you will be then. Now is the time to get ready for marriage by becoming the kind of husband, the kind of wife you should be. Well, let's turn to a simpler one and more complicated on children and parents. So there is a reciprocal relationship again here. Parents have responsibility for their own children, for their, uh, for their own behaviour towards their children. That is, parents are not always right. They're not above question or beyond question in the Bible. 
and they can't just buy and sell their children like property as happens in so many pagan societies even to this day. You can't just leave them like kids left on latch keys or pamper them with giving things without caring for them or bought them away because you didn't want them in the first place. Children are to obey their parents in everything. Notice again the reason why. Because it pleases the Lord who said, Honour your father and your mother that your days will be long in the land. That you'll, that notice it's both parents that you're to honour and obey. It's a stronger word than the word there for marriage. It's in the active voice. It's not be obedient to, it is obey. The submissive one is be submissive to. Notice fathers, and see how mothers are left out here. Fathers, there's a word for you. Mothers do a pretty good job without needing much of a word, but fathers need a particular word on the subject of parenting because fathers have a particular weakness in this area. The word to fathers, do not embitter your children. Do not discourage them. Do not so irritate them by nagging, deriding, constantly putting down, criticising them. It's the character of the word there, the word for embitter. Do not so ride hard upon them that you will discourage them. Fathers have a great potential for that and they need to have a different attitude. But what this little section raises for us, and I've gone much quicker through it because we're not many of us in the parent-children but in the marriage stakes, so that's why we've gone quicker on this one. What this passage though raises the question of when. When is a child a child? And when is a child not a child but an adult? When does this apply? How long do I have to go on obeying my parents? The question is the question of a Pharisee who doesn't want to obey their parents. To ask when is really to ask do I still have to now, which really means I don't want to. The passage though, friends, is about a child old enough to hear God's word, that's why it can be addressed to them, but still a juvenile. Now we Westerners, as Joshua's prayer led us in earlier, we Westerners, we need to hear that we've got to go on honouring our parents, for we are far too rebellious and disrespectful to our parents. And those Easterners amongst us, if we can still call the Orient of the Orient, you need help too, don't you? Because this passage is obeying as children. And if you obey as children when you're an adult, you will not bring honour to your parents. As an adult, you must act as adults and not let your parents tyrannise you. When do you cease being a child? When do you start being an adult? It's an irrelevant question in many ways, isn't it? But at the bottom line, of course, economics and marriage determines it. Economics when you are no longer living under the roof. Whenever you live under any person's roof, you must abide by the rules of the household, whoever it may be. Marriage, marriage is about leaving your father and mother and cleaving to your spouse. To go on obeying your parents when you are married seems to me to really have gone beyond what the Bible is talking about. But even though you may be married, even though you may be as old as I, you still need to honour your parents. But I don't honour my parents by obeying them. I honour them by speaking well of them and by living righteously and creditably so that people can speak well of my parents for the life they see me live. And then we come to slaves and masters. A letter came in which said, amongst other things, the Bible supports slavery and the slaughter of witches. If Philip Jensen supports these teachings, I would like to know. It's there, 29th of October, written by Mr. Michael Glass. Uh, it's one of those ones which is not, of course, true because Mr. Michael Glass has never contacted me to find out. However, on the off chance that he's come to church tonight, here we come onto the subject of slavery. First notice again the reciprocal nature of the passage. Not only have slaves got duties and obligations, masters also do in chapter 4 verse 1. That is, masters don't have total ownership so as to dispose of or to treat their slaves in any way they please. That is, biblical slavery gave to the slaves certain rights which were sacred and in the Old Testament legislated about. Therefore, we do not use the word slave in the Bible and necessarily should be thinking about 
the 18th century African slave trade, which the Bible would itself condemn. Nor should we thinking about Charlton Heston sweating in chains rowing in a Roman galley in some kind of uh, Cecil B. DeMille movie. Indeed, much of slavery has undergone revisionist history. Because we have, through a great moral campaign headed up by Christians in the 18th and into the 19th century, won a huge battle so that slavery as slavery has been removed from much of our society and world, the word slavery has now taken on the connotation of evil and all history has been rewritten in the light of that. But the rewriting of history has been wrong. For example, I was raised believing that the Civil War was about the, in America was about the northern states fighting the southern states over the subject of slavery. The southern states wanted slaves, the northern states did not want slaves. That is a complete lie. That is not true. Abraham Lincoln didn't come out against slavery till halfway through the war. The general who led, General Lee, who led the southerners, he released all his slaves, while the general who led the northerners actually had slaves. It wasn't about that, it was about state rights. In fact, as history is usually won by the, written by the winners, if you really go south, you'll find that it was the, the war of northern aggression, as those in the southern states call it. Uh, you don't hear it written that way because the south lost. And so it's called the Civil War because the northerners won. But it wasn't about slavery. There's much of that kind of revisionist history. The majority of the slave trade of the Africa, the slaves did not wind up in the United States of America the vast majority of them wound up in Brazil and the West Indies. The history is quite different to what you would expect. And the African slave traders, the ones who were in, on Africa, were by and large black, not white. The white people, they bought them from black traders, but the black traders had been trading in them for centuries before the white men bought them and took them across to America. It wasn't just white men did the wrong thing to black men, Black men did the wrong thing to black men, and white men did the wrong thing to black men, and sometimes black men captured white men and sold them as slaves as well. The story is much more complicated than the simple kind of good and bad guys that we've been taught. So before we look just quickly at what, slaves, what Paul tells the slaves to do, let me give you six points about slavery in the Bible. I'll be very quick. One... Slavery in the Bible basically is involuntary servitude. Not basically owning another person. It's basically involuntary servitude. Two, the ancient world had many, many forms of slavery, many forms of positions within slavery. So slaves in the ancient world would often work as domestic servants. They would often run households. They would rise up into government positions of authority. In fact, at one stage, the treasurer of the Roman Empire was a slave. Thirdly, the reason for slavery in the Bible was war, crime and indebtedness. War, crime and indebtedness. That is, just because you are a foreigner did not mean that you could be taken into slavery. As you saw from the first reading tonight, foreigners were treated differently to Israelites on the subject of slavery but just because you were a foreigner did not give any Israelite the right to take you as a slave. The alien living amongst the Israelites had to be treated with integrity and freedom and couldn't be just, just taken in. The reason why people were taken into slavery was because they were war. They fought it. It's a great problem. See, what do you do if you were the government in Britain and you had to deal with the Northern Irish situation? What do you do with people who are going to let off bombs? They're going to do it, be it they the Ulstermen or be it they the IRA men, they're going to let off bombs. What are you going to do with someone who says, I'm going to shoot people, I'm going to let off bombs as long as you leave me free? You don't have much option, do you? You either hand the country over to them and let them blow themselves up and each other up, or you take them and put them into prison. What do you think prison is? It's slavery. That's what it is. You force them to live where under chains and bars and to do the things that you require them to do. That's all slavery is. They didn't have prisons in the ancient world. They just had work farms. 
like we have, work fast. It's the same deal. We practice slavery today and have down the centuries in terms of biblical slavery. Or what do you do with someone who continues to commit crime, even if it's not a warfare situation like Ireland? What do you do with these men who have just, been, uh, just escaped from Queensland prison? What do we do if we capture them again? Do we let them roam free, men who rape, men who murder? We're just going to say, well, that's all right. We're glad to catch up with you. We're nice to know where you are. Thank you for giving us a forwarding address. Of course we don't. If people will act that way, they must be incarcerated. They must be kept under control. And their labour and their life is put under that constraint. Or what do you do with people in indebtedness? We've always had difficulty with this. Someone who borrows money won't pay it back. Well, we had debtors' prisons up until last century. We've now devised a system called bankruptcy, where people lose certain, certain liberties until they go through a period of time when they can be discharged from their bankruptcy. My friends, if you look at the slave instructions in the Old Testament, it is exactly the same then as it is today. The slaveries they practiced then are the slaveries they practice today. And we have it in all kinds of forms. Bonded service is another one. Uh, some years ago at the University of New South Wales, the Navy sent many uh, young officers to come and do their degree here. They did a year down at Creswell, then they did three or four years degree here, and then they went back to their office of training, and they had to serve for another four or five years. And they were not free to leave the Navy. Because they had chosen to accept a free education with salary, they then were put into bonded service for the next four or five years. That is biblical slavery. We practice it today. It's all around the world it's being practiced. West Indian kind of uh, African slave trading, that has been obliterated and may it ever be obliterated, although it is still practiced in parts of the Muslim African world. Point four. So three is the reason. Four, the Bible's always against slave trading and kidnapping. The Bible is always against slave trading and kidnapping, which is what the African slave trade was. And the Bible is always against it. You mustn't just steal a person and put them into bondage. They've got to have a reason for having to be put into bondage. Fifthly, the Bible sees being a slave is an undesirable state to be in. It's not something you should choose to do. Sometimes it's the only way you can work your way out of your economic dependence. You've got yourself into debt, the only thing you can do is accept bonded service. But it's not desirable. You shouldn't be in debt like that. If you have to be in debt like that, you should get out of it as fast as you can. And sixth point, the Bible limits how long a person is to be kept in slavery, how they are to be treated, and the terms of their discharge. So the slave must be provided for properly, must not be mistreated, and when their years of service have come to an end, and there is a strict limit to where the years of service do come, when their years of service have come, they are to be fully equipped by their owner to be able to live as free people afterwards. You're not to just leave the slave, put him out without any food, any clothes, any shelter. You've got to equip him properly so that he, having worked for you for the last seven years, can now live as a free economic unit again. Biblical slavery is something that is honourable, right and proper, and yes, I believe in it. So what should a slave do if they find themselves as a slave, as a Christian person? How do you relate? Well unlike the non-Christian, with willful obedience. Verses 22 to 25, Obey your earthly masters in everything and do it, not only when their eyes on you and to win their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. That would make you a very, very unusual slave, wouldn't it? Extraordinary slave. The person is in bonded service. The person is in debt. The only reason they're a slave is because they can't pay their way, so they've now got to work six years to pay their way. What's the habit, what's the character of such people? To do as little as possible. To only work when the boss is watching you and to carry as much favour with him as you can get. But not so the Christian slave. The Christian slave, he recognises there's a whole different thing taking place. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. If you know you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord as your reward. It's the Lord Christ that you're serving. The Christian slave no longer works 
for his human slave owner. The Christian slave now recognises that he's working for Christ himself and the reward he will receive from Christ himself is greater than the ownership of the master in this world. A different reason, a different motivation. And so chapter 4 verse 1, notice the masters also. The Christian master, he's not told let your slave go. Well, it wouldn't be right to let your slave go. There are some slaves you can't let go. The one who's going to go around murdering people, the one who's going to let off bombs against the government, you can't let that kind of slave go. You've got to keep them. Or the one who owes you money, and rightly it's your children's money that he has taken, and it's only if he works for another four years will he repay you. It's not right to let him go off his debt. You're not called upon to let him go. What you're called upon to do is to treat him in a way that is right and fair. The slave does not forego his right to be treated with righteousness, with justice and with fairness. And indeed, in case you need a reminder on this, remember, you too have a master. And you know how you want him to treat you with righteousness and fairness well, make sure that you treat your servants the way you want to be treated. For the Lord Jesus Christ is your master. Now I'm going to look at the uh, God apostles and outsiders next week in chapter 4, verses 2. I think we'll leave this uh, till next week on devoting ourselves to prayer and how we relate to outsiders as it will tie in with the rest of the greetings that take place there. Tonight, though, if I can go back and just look at that general principle there. We have been transferred out of the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of God's own Son. And as we receive Christ Jesus, that is, as the Lord, so we can go on living in him, built up in him, rooted in him. Because since we've died with Christ, we've died to the way of this world. And since we've risen with Christ, we've risen to a new way of living. But it's not only a new way of living, it's a new way of relating to others around about us. Quite new for us. It'll change the way we live compared to our society. For some of us, it's just a subtle shift. For some of us, it's a massive shift. For some of us live in a society that's just like the Christian society and others live in a society which is so pagan to live as a Christian will mark us out as eccentric and weird. But if we have God as King through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, then his way of living is the way we must live now. And his way of living is felt out not only in us, in our own lives of compassion and kindness, but also in the way we relate with wives, with husbands, with children, parents, as slaves, and as masters. Because the fundamental question is whether we're Christians. That's the key. If you're not a Christian, the Christian sense of how to live, well, you might agree with us, you might not agree with us. You might be able to put up the arguments of utility and justice, but you might have different arguments of utility and justice. But of course, if Jesus isn't as your king, then you don't really know how to live, do you? It just shifts around. I mean, you were against fornication until you fornicated. You're against pornography until you started reading it. You're against adultery until you did it. You're against... It just shifts, doesn't it? You're blowing around like the wind. So you do not know how to live. Jesus is the way to live. And how do you come to him? Turn with me to the back here and we'll pray this prayer before I pray on some other matters. You want to change government so that Jesus is king instead of yourself? This kind of prayer is a prayer to pray and I invite you to pray it with me in the quietness of your own mind as I pray it out loud. Dear God, I know that I'm not worthy to be accepted by you. I don't deserve your 
gift of eternal life that I'm guilty of rebelling against you, ignoring you, and I need forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son to die for me that I may be forgiven, and thank you that he rose from the dead to give me new life. Please forgive me and change me that I may live with Jesus as my ruler. Amen. Heavenly Father, we do pray for those of us who are struggling with coming to you through Jesus right now, that your spirit would be at such at work within us as to bring us to acknowledge him as ruler, not only with our lips, but in our lives. And Heavenly Father, we pray for those of us who do know Jesus as King, that you would help us to so understand how your world works and what is just, that we may see the choices of life in the ways in which we relate as you see them, that we may live happily in our marriages, in our families, in our work context, in our society, as your children. As wives we may be submissive and as husbands loving, as children obedient and as fathers not embittering our children. As those of us indebted to others might fulfil our debt freely, fully, from the heart with sincerity, as those who have responsibility for others may treat them with justice and fairness. Heavenly Father, teach us to relate as your children that we might serve the Lord Jesus our King in righteousness and holiness in all ways. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the talks on philipjensen.com. Please check our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material on philipjensen.com.